here for the first time, so if you will open your Bible to the book of, uh, book of Proverbs, we'll go ahead and get started with our lesson tonight. Chapter 6 is a lesson, lessons for daily life, and it begins with dangerous promises. Proverbs 6 is just good, simple business principles. God has given a lot of good advice for people, saved as well as the unsaved. Now, as we all know, no one is prepared for life. And especially if you haven't learned some basic lessons on financial wisdom and a good work ethic and moral principles for dealing with society. Proverbs 6 now shifts from its larger exhortations and gives teachings in four specific areas of behavior. The four teachings are in verses 1 through 5, 6 through 11, 12 through 15, and 16 through 19. Now these four teachings in chapter 6, they're not a call for us to get wisdom, nor for listening to parental advice. The first teaching has one similarity to the parental advice because it uses the words, my son. But it doesn't have the usual fatherly request for the son to listen to the father's words. Also, unlike the parental advice, this section doesn't have a a particular theme. Each of the four teachings is separate, but they're connected in a way, in a sense, by certain words and ideas. For example, in the first teaching, the man trapped in a contract shouldn't go to sleep until he's gotten out of that contract, verse 4. And while the sluggard, mentioned in verse 9, in the second teaching, is caught by a little sleep and a little slumber, according to verse 10. The second teaching ends with the sluggard, or the lazy man, ending up poor like a vagrant or beggar, according to verse 11. And the third teaching starts with a condemnation of the worthless person or a wicked man in verse 12. And last, number four, the mark of the worthless person that is a wicked man is that he devises evil continually and he sows discord, according to verse 14. A sin, that is one who devises evil continually, the one who sows discord is a sin that's listed as the seventh thing that the Lord hates in the fourth teaching here in verse 19. And then in verses 20 through 35, Solomon deals with adultery again, and he points out what people will lose who commit this evil sin. So let's begin now with Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 5, a warning against co-signing. Look at verses 1 through 5. And Solomon says, My son... If you become surety or or security for your friend, if you have shaken hands in the pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself. For you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend and give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Again, this is a warning against co-signing. Now, this isn't 
to be understood as a total ban or it being a total no-no when it comes to co-signing. But it's good advice for not rushing into co-signing. For someone, whether it's family or friends or whoever it might be, without thinking it through first. And then taking on the responsibility of somebody else's debt. And if you've already made that mistake... Solomon says you should get out of that arrangement as soon as possible. And it suggests that no one should get into legal bondage and debt where you have no control. And this is the case where co-signing for another person is concerned. Now, again, the Bible doesn't totally forbid taking on legal responsibilities for somebody else. Paul said in Philemon 18, he said, if, if he, that is Onesimus, has wronged you or owes you anything, he says, put that on my account. But the idea that Solomon is trying to get across here is to, is to risk your home and your financial freedom is total foolishness. And even though we don't have any information on Israelite laws of security, it was a common thing for the one who was in debt to have his assets and his home confiscated, and even the debtor sold into slavery for not making payments, and the co-signer could have had the same thing happen to them. So you see, it's important that we keep a balance between generosity and, you know, doing a kind thing, because, you know, a lot of times our heart goes out to somebody. It can be a family member. It can be a friend. Oh, they, they, you know, they, 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 they need this money, and they really need help, and, and that's kind, and that's wonderful. But we have to keep a balance between generosity and good stewardship, wise stewardship. God wants us to help our friends. He wants us to help the needy. But he doesn't want us to cover the cost of every unwise commitment that we make. So it's just, it's just as important to act responsible, responsibly so that our families don't suffer. Paul said in Romans 3.8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. And then in verses 6 through 11, Solomon gives foolishness about being lazy. Look at verses 6 through 11. He goes on to say, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. We all know how those last few minutes of sleep are so wonderful. We cherish them as we slam the snooze button one or two or three times. We resist getting out of bed and heading off to work or whatever important appointment we have waiting for us you know alan redpath one day said he said we need to play pray for blanket victory for the victory of getting out from underneath them and it's true proverbs warns us though against giving in to laziness 
to, you know, means you know, for sleep instead of working. Now, we definitely need to get our rest, but not when we're supposed to, when we're supposed to be working. And if laziness keeps us from our responsibilities, then poverty will definitely keep us from the legitimate rest that we should enjoy because we're going to have to work twice as much or twice as long to make up for it. You know, and Solomon here uses the ants, and they're a great example. If you've ever watched ants, if you ever had an ant farm or you watched them on a, in an ant hill, them little guys, they never stop. So Solomon uses the ants as a great example of hard workers. They work hard, they work continuously, they work tirelessly. It says even though they don't have a supervisor to crack the whip over them. They don't have somebody overseeing them. They don't have somebody tell them, hey, you guys, get to work. Solomon says they prepare for the winter even though they don't have anyone to make plans for them or to drive them. Laziness leads to sure poverty and ruin, Solomon says. And he says, poverty will come like a vagabond and a beggar. Poverty and debt cling to the lazy person, like he says, like habitual beggars who always hang around the house and always want more. Laziness will drain your savings until the lazy person has nothing left. Notice Solomon says in verse 6, consider her ways. That is speaking about the ant. Consider the ways of an ant. Pay attention to them. Get wisdom from them because the ant displays its wisdom by its productivity and forethought. Then the third example in verses 12 through 16 is of the wicked man. That is the behavior of the worthless person. So let's look at verse 12 through 16. A worthless person, a a wicked man walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. So Solomon, the teacher here, starts out by describing the nature and the character traits of the man that he's warning about. He's warning about the behavior of the worthless person or the wicked man. And then he goes on to point out the different characteristics of his behavior that he's known by. And the first characteristic in his life is a willful and damaging misrepresentation of the truth. A wicked man literally means a man of vanity or iniquity. Solomon says he's a person who's totally lacking in moral consciousness. And he goes around to do wickedness and to do hurt and to do injury to other people. Notice it says there that he walks with a perverse mouth. We've seen his first characteristic. His whole life and behavior are marked by deceitfulness, by craftiness, by perversion, misrepresentation, a total lack of truth. He uses his mouth or his speech to express outwardly the evil thoughts in his heart. And the psalmist says in Psalm 10, 7, it is well, he says, and the psalmist says it well, he says, his mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity, Psalm 10, 7. 
And the wicked man uses other parts of his body for the same wicked purpose, according to verse 13. Notice it says he winks with his eye. This means that he's planning malice. He's planning no good against somebody. He's stirring up discord, verse 14 says. This is nonverbal communication with his partners. It says he shuffles his feet. That is, he gives signs with his feet to his companions. He points with his fingers. Now, it's hard for some people to think that God could hate. Because we always say, well, God is love. Yes, he is. People think that God can't hate because they think of him only as a God of love. And the reason they have this kind of reaction is because they bring down God to their level of thought. God is love. The Bible says God is love. It's true. And because God is love, he can't hate, is what they think. But that's not true. God is love, but God hates evil, verse 16 tells us here. And as long as there's a, there's a world of differences, that is a world where sin has entered, we'll, we'll love right and we'll hate wrong. Or if you love sin, you'll hate righteousness. And the word of God tells us to love the good and hate the evil in Ecclesiastes 3.8. There's a time to love and a time to hate. And here in this passage, we see there are seven things that God hates. And you know what? If God hates them, how can we love them? If God hates them, we should hate them too. How can you love what God hates and hate what God loves? Verse 17 says, notice. Okay, let's go back to 16. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Notice the first one in 17. He hates a proud look. A proud look. And it's not just the look that's meant here. But it's the attitude of the heart and the mind that the look expresses. The proud look indicates the pride that fills the heart. The supreme hatred for everything and everybody. And notice at the top of the list here is pride of the things that God hates. God hates pride. Because you see, pride is the root of all disobedience. I don't need God. I think, you know, I, I'm proudful. Of, I, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm smart enough and I'm wise enough that I don't need God. I can live my own life without God. You Christians, you're weak. You need a crutch. You know, you're you're lowly. That's pride. Who leaves God out of their life? That's why God hates it. It's the very opposite of humility, which is a character trait of our Savior. Which Paul says humility is the basis of all the virtues. All pride is intended. And the Lord is against this pride. When he says pride here, he's speaking of all kinds of pride. And the Lord is against this pride. Notice the second thing that God hates there in the second part of verse 17. A lying tongue. God hates lying. 
in any way, shape, or form. And you know, we have, we have many ways to justify lying. And we call it by different names. And I, and I, you know, I know that, you know, and, and as parents, many times, without maybe knowing it, we, we teach our children to lie. When we go to a show or a thing, oh, tell them you're 12. The sign says, you know, under 12, tell them you're 12. You get a cheap. What have we just told them to do? Lie. It's okay in this instance. But, but God, the Bible says that God cannot lie. He's the God of truth. Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies. Lying is the willful perversion of truth, no matter how it's communicated. Remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in the early church? We'll see that in the book of Acts. I think it's chapter 5. They were punished by death for lying. Can you imagine what would happen today if God punished the church for lying? There'd be heel tracks drug across the carpet for those that were drug out of the church. They lied and Satan, God struck them dead. Every lie is a sin. And you know what? A half truth is a whole lie. Exaggeration is a lie. When I have to embellish the truth to make somebody believe it, does that mean my, my, my word and my character isn't good enough for them to take me at my word? That I have to embellish the truth? I have to beef it up? I have to make it sound really good to be believed? Exaggeration is a lie. Listen to what John said in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Liars will have a place in hell. Third thing that God hates. In verse 17, notice, hands that shed innocent blood. For instance, a murderous and cruel temper. Which, rather than, you know, have its plans frustrated, you know, when when things don't go right in somebody's life, and their plans are frustrated or or just didn't go, you know, they'll, they'll stain their hands with innocent blood. The blood of those, it says, who have done no harm. Innocent blood. Notice it says here at the end of verse 17. Hands that shed innocent blood. Those who have shed blood uh, for those who have done no harm. What do you think that says about abortion? Those hands that have shed the innocent blood of those unborn. The Lord commands, you shall not murder. And those who do will find out one day, even though they're not caught, that the Lord is the avenger of blood. Remember, we saw that with Cain and Abel. After Cain killed his brother Abel, in Genesis 4, 9 through 10, listen to the conversation between God and Cain. The Lord said to Cain, where's, your Abel, where, where, where's Abel, your brother? Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? God said, what have you done? Notice the question. He's trying to get a confession out of, out of Cain. Cain just continues to try to 
I don't know. I, I don't know. Where I'm, I'm not here to take care of my brother. But notice what God said. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Can you imagine how many millions and millions of babies' voices crying out from the ground to God who have been, who have been aborted? Verse 18, the next thing God hates, the fourth thing God hates is a heart that devises wicked plans. There are evil thoughts in all men's hearts. You know, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful, it is wicked above all things. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. God's word tells us that men's hearts are evil, that we don't even know how evil our hearts can be. And there are evil thoughts in all men's hearts. But planning evil and carrying out that evil turns the heart into into the devil's instrument, the devil's workplace. And a heart that devises uh, devises wicked plans, it's, it's it's a mark of total depravity and wickedness, and God hates it. Jesus validates this in Mark 7, 21 through 23. Jesus said himself, for from within, notice, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And we could continue to add to that list. He said, all of these evil things come from within and defile a man. And even though the plans and the schemes of the heart are planned in secret, they are clear to God because nothing is hidden from him. The next thing God hates in verse 18, notice uh, uh, it says, uh, uh, feet that are swift in running to evil. Feet that are swift to running to evil. To run to mischief. To run to evil is to carry it out, to carry out some evil plan with enthusiasm and without delay. Something that's already been planned in the heart of man. It implies more than falling into sin, which is common to all of us. Then in verse 19, we see the, 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 the next thing that God hates, a false witness who speaks lies. This is, in other words, this is lies as a false witness. This is more than lying that we just looked at in verse 17. This is more than a lying tongue. The sin mentioned here is that God, what God hates here is clearly forbidden in the moral law in Exodus 20, 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That is, you shall not lie about your neighbor. The person that lies as a false witness must be hateful to God. And then in verse 19, the next one. And one who sows discord among the brethren, the seventh thing, the seventh and last thing on the list that God hates. One who sows discord among brethren. Whether, whether you're sowing this discord against someone in your family or in, in somebody in society or in a religious community. And verse 19 closes like it did in verse 14, look at verse 19. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among his brethren. So it closes like it did in verse 14. But the words among brethren definitely is marking the behavior of that man as devilish who destroys the harmony and the unity of those who should live together in brotherly affection. And he disturbs the peace of people. Peace. 
Now Solomon gets back to that of adultery. Notice, beginning with verse 20 now, he's speaking about beware of adultery. Sexual sin slowly destroys you. Look at verse 20. He says, my son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Because of the extreme tendency of men, and especially young men, for sexual sin is most likely why Solomon brings this subject up again. In verses 20 through 24, sexual sin will cause you to lose the word of God. And the following verses, 20 through 24, point out that way of life, the way of safety. It's to be maintained by obeying the advice of parents who command, whose commandment and law are like a light that shines that, on that dangerous road of life. And whose rebukes, that is, or whose par- our parents' rebukes, they're valuable to us. They're valuable to the soul. Look at verse 21 now. Bind them. Continually upon your heart, tie them around your neck. Now, to tie them around your neck may suggest the use of amulets, which was an oriental custom to ward off evil. But it more likely refers to wearing ornaments. Now, when it, when it says there in verse 21, notice it says, bind them, the word them, all right, is the commandment and the law of the father and mother. In other words, bind the commandment of the law of the father and the mother around your neck. Tie them or bind them here. It means to bind. It means that the commandment, the precept, the law or whatever is intended, whatever structure is intended should always be present in our mind. The heart suggests that they're to be linked to the affections. Notice in verse 20, bind them continually upon your heart. That was the seat of the affections. So the heart suggests that these, these things, the commandments of the law and the mother, they were, to be, they were to be linked to the affections, to the heart and the neck as an ornament, so they would be an ornament adorning the moral character. It beautifies. The, the parent's law would beautify the moral character of the child. Verse 22. And when you roam, they will lead you. Again, speaking of mother and father's law and commandment. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. The walking, the sleeping, and the awaking specify only three conditions. But they refer to the whole area of life, the whole behavior of life. And they promise direction, they promise protection, and they promise wisdom. Which will no doubt be with you all of your life if the instructions of parents are lovingly treasured and obediently observed. The word of God in the mind and in the heart is like a guide. They're they're like a signpost who will lead you on safe paths and they will protect us from attacks. Mom and dad's laws and commandments, they're like a friend who talks to us and who counsels us along the way. Look at verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light, 
reproofs or rebuke of instruction are the way of life. Solomon here describes the words commandment and law as a lamp and a light. What is a lamp and a light for? To light your way. To help you to see. The commandment is any special or particular commandment that's according to God's will. And it commands what's to be done and what's not to be done. The law in verse 23 here is the whole law of God. Every word of God. Basically the whole system of of just common instruction. The commandment and the law here both enlighten the conscience and they enable us to walk in his, that is God's ways of life. God's way of life. Verse 24. Notice, to keep you, and here's why, to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of the seductress. This is the specific purpose that these instructions were just given from verses 23 to 24. These are the specific purpose, the counsel that was intended for. If we listen to God's voice in his word, we won't fall for the enemy's flattery. Verse 25 and 26. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread and an, an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Solomon says, they lose wealth. Do not lust after her. Do not desire her. Do not covet her. It has a sense here of of taking delight in anything. In your heart here is the admonition. It's a warning to crucify. It's to crucify the very first feelings of an unholy desire. And that's for anything. Here in particular, it's for, for, the, for the immoral woman. But the moment we get any ungodly desire, any ungodly feeling in our heart, we are to crucify it immediately. <clears throat> any and all unholy desires. Now, other people may not see these feelings that, go, that are going on in our heart, these ungodly desires. But we do. We know they're there. And our first duty is to stop them immediately. And that requires an act of determination and will on our part, just like when Joseph was was seduced by Pharaoh's wife. He didn't have to stop and think, "Mm, what should I do? He already purposed in his mind that if that situation was to come up or any kind of ungodly situation, he was gone. He said, I'm going to run. And that's what we need to do. We need to run from any ungodly desires that we have. Our Lord teaches in Matthew 5, 28, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Never let the desire of beauty or anything conquer you. Job 31, 1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? This covenant that Job made to himself, with himself, speaks about a sincere dedication to purity. Lord, I am going to remain pure for you. And you have to be serious about purity. Or you will never succeed in being pure and staying pure. Hebrews 12, 14 says that that without holiness, we shall not see God. Our salvation hinges upon our holiness. 
Job said, man, I am not going to look at anything that's going to cause me to have dirty thoughts. One look, okay, turn away. The second, third look, you're in trouble. Magazines, TV, movies, videos. You have to be careful what you watch if you want to have a pure mind. He says also here, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. Don't let her charm you with her alluring and seducing looks. Verse 24, it speaks about the eyelids. They're the instruments of the evil woman, Solomon's saying here. And she uses them to lure and to catch her victims. She allures them by her sensual glances to him. And then from verse 26 to the end of the chapter, the council consists of a, seri- of a series of reasons. And each one is designed to discourage young people from sins of fornication and adultery by showing the horrible consequences of indulging in such sin. The first example is extreme, is extreme poverty that a man is brought to. Look at verse 26. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Notice, the man is reduced to a crust of bread. This means, this means he's degraded to the lowest level of poverty. He can't get any lower. She will make you as poor as a crust of bread, Solomon says. And if the adultery results in scandal or a lawsuit or divorce, the price is not going to be cheap. And in this day of sexually transmitted diseases, the the adulterer is taking chances with his health, her health. He's taking chances with his health, with his life, and his partner's health. And if he gets back with his wife, you know what? He could be risking her health, her life. Verses 27 through 31 now shows us that the men who falls for this woman, they they lose their enjoyment. Look, verses 27 through 28. She can make a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes. I'm sorry. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? Fire is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. We use it for a lot of things. It's a wonderful thing if... If it's kept under control, we use fire to heat our homes. We use fire to cook, to warm our water, to make electricity. Sex is a wonderful thing. It's a gift from God. If it's kept under control, if not, it becomes like a wildfire and it's destructive. And adultery is stealing. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 3 through 6. For this is the will of God. There's the first thing that we need to take to heart. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you should know how to possess his own vessel, her own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who don't know God. Paul says, you know, as Christians, man, you should should know the will of God. To be sanctified, you should abstain from sexual immorality. You should, you should sac- sanctify this body and honor this body and, and not fall into the passion of like the Gentile who doesn't know God. 
He's saying the Christian, the Christian who does not stand in moral purity and, and gets caught up in this, you're just like the unbeliever who doesn't know God. And he says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Defraud, you know, d- d- stealing, robbing. You know, it's like, maybe a lousy illustration, but it's just, you know, it, it's like, a man who, who looks at his neighbor, he's got this beautiful car. But he doesn't take care of it. Do you think it's right to steal that car? Because you think you can take better care of it? Do you think you're doing that man a favor by taking his wife? Do you think you're doing his children a favor by stealing his wife? The other man's wife? Adultery is one of the most heartless things we can do. You know what? It's not about the other people. It's not about that woman or that man. It's not about those kids. It's not about that family. It's about you. I don't care what happens to everybody else, even my own family. It's one of the most heartless things that we can do. When adultery enters a marriage, everybody gets hurt and everybody loses. Verse 29. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. It is just as foolish to think that an adulterer will escape punishment as it is to think that there's no destruction where a wildfire rages out of control. And for sure, as well as the very heaviest punishment, it will come upon those who commit this evil act. Verse 30 through 31. People do not despise a thief when he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance substance of his house. In other words, if a man steals because he's hungry, it's a sad thing. It's a different thing. It doesn't make it right. Our heart goes out to that person. But notice here, the psalmist says, even though he's stolen because he's hungry, again, and he steals theft here and adultery, he compares them to each other. Stealing and adultery are compared to each other. But theft under all circumstances is a lesser crime than adultery. But here it's minimized to the lowest level. Now, the case of this man, an example, you know, he's he's stealing to satisfy his hunger. And the degree of the theft that he's doing, it, it can't be taken that serious. Yet he's still punished, it says here. And he still needs to pay back what he's stolen, sevenfold. And it says even if he have to sell, has to sell everything he owns, he needs to do that to pay back. But, the, but Solomon implies here that the punishment will be a lot greater and a lot more sure where adultery is in question. And the crime is of the most wicked in its nature, affecting the most precious interests. That is of the others and done from the lowest of carnal natures, satisfying the flesh. Verse 32, whoever commits adultery with a woman and or vice versa, whoever commits uh, adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. They lose their good sense. King David was an, an he was an excellent strategist when it came to war and the battlefield. David was a wise ruler on the throne, but man, he threw all common sense out the window when he began to check out his neighbor's wife and begin to lust for her and want her. 
David was so sure that he could get away with his sin. But common sense would have told him, David, there's no way you can get away with this because your sin will find you out. And David tried every trick in the book to make people think that the child that, 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 that belonged to Bathsheba's husband, uh, that, that that child belonged to uh, Bathsheba's husband, though it was his child. He tried every trick in the book to make people think that that child belonged to Uriah's, to Bathsheba's husband. But all of the tricks he tried failed. And so he ended up having her husband murdered to hide his sin. David had to know that what we reap, is, what we reap, we sow. And boy, did David reap right in the harvest field of his own family. His family was messed up after that. Then verses 33 through 35 shows us they lose their peace. Look at verse 33. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach, notice, will not be wiped away. Committing adultery is something that will scar scar you and your soul for life. And everybody else will be scarred. That's involved whether whether they are a participant or a casualty. Adultery is something you can't ever erase. And if you commit it, you lack understanding. You'll wreck your home, you'll wreck your life, and you'll wreck others too. In closing, verses 34 through 35. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give him many gifts. Man, the injured husband, the one that you took his wife from. He is not going to show any compassion or mercy to that man who has wronged him so deeply, the Bible says. It says here, in the day of vengeance, that may refer to the time when the adulterer is brought before the judges, but more likely to every chance that the husband gets to bring vengeance upon that man who stole his wife. The outraged husband will bring all of his fury down on the adulterer. And we read about that all the time. A man catches another man with his wife and, and he, he, he'll murder him. The outraged husband will bring all his fury down on the adulterer who will, at least, who will at least be humiliated and beaten if not executed, which is implied here in verse 35. Even if the adulterer is wealthy, it won't do him any good. Here's the point. There's no escape for the adulterer once he's been found out. Today, if a person has enough money and influence, hey, they might be able to get away with an adulterous scandal, but their life will never be quite the same. Whether in this life or the next, sinners can be sure that their sins will find them out, including sexual sin. Man, it's always a losing situation. Father, we thank you for the beautiful counsel of your word, God. But God, your counsel is only good if we take it, God. If we apply it to our life, God. Lord, let us determine in our soul. Men, man or woman. That we will never lust after another. That we will never covet somebody else's spouse. 
may we never look at another person's spouse and think, wow, I wish my spouse was like theirs. Because you don't know. You don't know what goes on in other people's homes. And always remember that your spouse was created just for you. That you are one soul, one body, one in spirit. God made that person for you. And God hates divorce. He hates adultery. He hates sexual immorality. Because it ruins so many people. And Father, I pray that, God, we would take your word seriously, God. Satan is such a deceiver, and he makes it look like it, oh, it won't happen to me. I won't get caught. Nobody will ever find out. That's the way it always works with the devil. It'll be different for you. Not so. The Bible says your sin will find you out. Nothing is hidden from God. And one day, you will be revealed. Your sin will be revealed. And God, for those who may be in a flirtatious relationship or an adulterous relationship, God. Lord, may they understand the danger that they're in, the damage that they can do. And if somebody's contemplating having a, a relationship, maybe flirting with somebody at work or somewhere else, God, may they right now as we studied earlier, may they in their heart put that desire to death, nail it to the cross. May that, that sinful desire, that foolish desire, again, may it be buried, put to death, crucified. And like the covenant that Job made with his eyes, I will not allow my eyes to look at anything with an ungodly desire. And that I'll look just at you, Christ. I will just keep looking unto you as the, as the author and the finisher of my faith. Looking up unto Jesus. Pressing towards the mark of that high calling of God. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And Father, we just pray now that you'd, you'd bless each one, God, as, as they make their way home or to wherever they may be going, God. Have your hand upon us. Watch over us. Keep us, God. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.